Hello and welcome to the Young Contemptibles podcast. And today we are talking about the state of the hobby and events. And one of the periods we're going to cover first of all is the Napoleonic era, which is an era that I myself have spent many years portraying since 2013, in fact. So Jake, have you ever been or seen any Napoleonic reenactors or living historians at any events? So I've, I've seen a few, um, not greatly because I haven't done the um, actual period myself. But I've seen it enough times and I've got quite a big interest into it um, where I would like to get into it eventually, maybe at one period in my life. So and mm. sort of same similar aspect to the American Civil War as well. So, but yeah, go ahead, Steve. Yes, the, the Napoleonic era, to be fair, is a little bit unique because unlike pretty much every other period of, um, sort of history that's portrayed in the UK, um, obviously by the Stone Age, because they didn't have tents, um, they, it's kind of unique because... Everyone who takes part in Napoleonic events, they stay in, in canvas tents, which is something that, you know, is, is period correct to a degree for the Napoleonic era. Um, but within that, there is sort of groups in themselves who, you know, at one end of the spectrum will uh, have, you know, inflatable airbeds in the tent and all that sort of jazz, and they'll just eat modern food all weekend. Then you'll have other groups at the other end of this sort of spectrum who will, um, you know, just put some straw down and just just sleep on the floor or They'll even take it to the nth degree, like we used to with the 60th, and use uh, proper blankets between a four-man mess and put them up and uh, live under that for a weekend, uh, kind of like campaigning in that sense. Now, one of the, one of the issues with the Napoleonic period, period and it's really uh, riddled with, is the um, it, it, it's sharp. There's no other way of saying it. Now, I'm a massive fan of the sharp series, don't get me wrong. The, the sort of entertainment value is immeasurable. It's an incredible series. It's very entertaining. And, you know, it stood the test of time. However, it's became, um, well, it has become, and it has historically became the sort of go-to place for people who want to get involved in Napoleonic. It's a very easy inroad to the Napoleonic era. So if you watch Sharp, you kind of use that as a bridge into getting into reenacting, living history. Uh, I myself am guilty of that. Absolutely. However, people will use it as a primary resource. And they'll base their uniforms off, um, you know, the, the sort of got ones that the guys in the 95th are wearing, like Sean Bean, like Sharp and, you know, um, Harper, et cetera. And I use it as a primary resource and I think that it's fact. Now, that, that's a very dangerous uh, route to go down with in any period, but it's very prevalent in the Napoleonic uh, kind of era. So in terms of the state of the hobby, it, it's in a good place. However, like authentic, well, speaking authentically, um it's it's in a good position but it's struggling very much so with the um reduction in numbers since waterloo uh, 200 in 2015 uh, so we we took 15 guys over in our group in the 60th to um to waterloo in 2015 a fantastic event is uh, nearly 8000 people on the field uh, 500 horse over 100 cannon it was amazing real spectacle but once um that that event was over and done with and out of the way uh, many people left because they only really joined for that event. So we ended up falling to, to less than about 10 people active in the group. And that's been the same across the board for, um, for all of the Napoleonic groups that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I've seen a case with um, other uh, periods as well um, with certain events. And um, yeah, and I think, as you said, with the way of like how some groups portray and how some groups... Um, act when they're say at an event or whatever it, it's really sort of like a hit and miss with how some groups do it really 
which is is a bit of a shame. Mm. And I think as well in the way of um, what you said with regards to people go off with their impressions or whatever they're doing from say like TV series or movies, like mm. for example, Sharp, as you said, um, yeah. with, within the World War II um, era of community in the reenacting or living history world, it's very much, it, it almost increased that by like tenfold because you've got so many movies, you've got so many TV series. I think especially yeah. after say like Band of Brothers came out, you had an influx of hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to do first air, <laughs> uh, wanting to do um, yeah. first airborne. <laughs> Um, literally every other group was American Airborne, which um, kind of liquidated the whole of the um, hobby, which was kind of, it, 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 it was good, but in the same way, it was very bad because it meant like every single, where even, it still happens today, like every single like battle and, and like an event is, oh, it's American Airborne versus the SS. And it's, it's literally just a copy and paste of the same event, really. Um and similar things would like uh, people go off um, a bridge too far. And again, I love the film. It's a brilliant film, but there are things wrong with it. And people will tend to base their entire impression or whatever they're doing off of that. And everyone wants to do first airborne. Um, mm. And it's like with any sort of media, really, if it be film, television, radio, whatever, really, um, you have to take everything with like a pinch of salt, really. Um, if you're going to base an impression of it, like do your research um look into it and don't like always i say go against the grind sometimes go against the grain because it's something more unique um allows a bit more a bit more room to maneuver and it's something different and it's something new and it, that's what brings people into it as well i think as well so yeah definitely that, that is that is very yeah. very much true i you know completely wholeheartedly agree with that research is a, is a massive um, sort Indeed. of element into getting into you know reenacting and living history. I mean, as we've mentioned before, they're two distinctly different things in that sense. But research is massive. I mean, whether you do the research yourself or whether you know lean on other people who you know have already been there and done it and they're willing to share. You know, I'm a very, I'm a very, you know, I'm a very strong advocate of sharing any research I've got. Uh, very much, you know, especially within the Napoleonic period because that's my uh, specialist period, especially the tailoring and clothing side of it. Um, but that was all born out of you know striving for authenticity and so forth. But I think picking up the points of authenticity, we'll park that and we'll talk about that for maybe dedicate a whole uh, podcast specifically to that. But Definitely. in terms of what you mentioned about, um, mm. about, about uh, battles, so World War II battles, especially, uh, we've mentioned it before already, and we're only two episodes in, but I, I really switch off with even just watching World War II yeah. battles. They are yeah, definitely. They're so far removed from what, you know, it would actually be like you'd have to take the battlefield and times it by about twenty to get an ac accurate representation yeah. in terms of you know footprint size of it. Especially like the Normandy battles and so forth, they're mm -hmm. uh, a bit of a joke. But sort of rolling back to the Napoleonic battles, um, I've I've been lucky enough to be in some fantastic battles where it'll be like a rolling sort of campaign uh, event for a weekend, or um, you know your battle will be on quite a big um, piece of ground where you've got some uh, you know defensive structures and things like that to be. Uh, a part of, I mean, Waterloo 200, when we did that, that was actually fought on the part of the battlefield uh, next to, well, adjacent to La Haye-Saint, uh, where the 95th were and uh, the 43rd as well. And it was an, it was amazing to actually be on the battlefield, um, you know, portraying uh, a small section of that battle. Uh, but I think the one thing, and I think you're going to agree with this, the one bane of uh, living historians' events on the calendar is railway events. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Like, there are exceptions to the rule. Don't get me wrong. There are exceptions, but the vast majority are very, um, yeah, 
<laughs> it's, it's difficult. To, it's difficult to explain without unless you've experienced it. But it's very um, it's very much a sort of the same music is played constantly. Uh, oh, the music on the and music. off the train. It's it's very it's very catered towards the public, which which mm. generally that's what events are for. But the thing is, a lot of railway events aren't too keen on say reenactors or living historians. It's yeah. it, it, it it can be a hit or miss. Thankfully. Um, the um, event me and Steve um, attended recently at Wallingford at War was very yep. much a nice exception to the rule for a change. Mm. Um, they were very keen for us to get involved. Um, yeah, and it was a really, it was a really, really lovely event. Shame on the Saturday it did um, bucket it down, but on the Sunday the uh, skies did clear, thankfully. So it wasn't. It was a really good event. Yeah, I think with with railway events, I mean, it is very much hit and miss. They're more like. Um sort of glamour, 40s glamour events where people, Definitely. you know, go along and put some clobber on and they celebrate or, or do whatever they do, just wearing those clothes are definitely not living history events. I mean, there was an yeah. exception with, as you say, Wallingford at War we went to. Um, I kind of went into that event with open eyes. It's a very small uh, railway um, that's, you know, sort of uh, ran by volunteers. And I have to say they were very, very appreciative of um, all of the living historians who were there and what we did. They made, um, no, no, you know, they really kind of, appreciated what we were doing they're really supportive and you know we'll go back next year but there are Definitely. other railway events i've been to and i won't name them you know i don't want any uh, lawsuits against us <laughs> but uh you know i definitely wouldn't wouldn't go back there uh, you know to sort of uh, get a living history um you know sort of uh, e- event off off the ground there at all because you know the reason why i go to events is because i always want to come away having uh, achieved and or learned something from it I don't. I, will, I always want to have a takeaway from it. I don't want to, uh, you know, go there and think, well, I didn't enjoy that weekend. That was a weekend of my life. I'll never get back. No, definitely. Um, and I um, second the point, Mayor Steve. Really, it's, it's, is it? You want you want to have, as you said, you want to have learned something and taken away something, and obviously maybe even taught something as well um, to mm. say someone or some, or a group of people or someone along those lines so it's it's um yeah you really you really want to ha- at least take something away from an event you don't just go it and then oh, oh that's that's that then um mm. and i think railway events are very very guilty and then and, and some main event not just railway but some main events as well are guilty of that as well it, it's some events are just like a booze up and and then all will as i think you mentioned in in the previous in the previous episode um that some people for some people just go have a drink getting kit for a couple of hours and then that's it again um yeah. you want to be able to take something away from it. you want to be able to enjoy going because like you spent time money and effort to go there and get all get all the things together and try to be as accurate as possible for it just to be a um passing thing is it's it's a bit unfulfilling really but, but yeah and i think some some railway events for example are like it's very much a as you said a glamorized version of the of the war because obviously most practically nine nine times out of ten rail, the railway events are World War Two. Um, you find very very rarely any that are like World War One or before or after really. Um, and it's very much a glamorized version of World War Two. There's a group who are doing like dancing and that's like at the station and it's like okay, um, and it's sort of like a, a copy and paste of like every other railway event in the UK. Um, yeah. Some events, uh, like we said at Wallingford, and then there's another one, I think, up north, which do it um, a bit more grander and very much involved with the um, 
reenactors and living historians to the point where they try to make it as great as possible, um, not just for the public, but for the reenactors as well, um, which which are great. And uh, I think if if that was more um, broad uh, along with all other railway events, and that'd be brilliant. It might be much more desirable to go to them as a living historian. Mm. But I think um, it's very much an exception to the rule at the moment, really. Yeah, it, it very much is. And going to, you know, railway events and that sort of sort of thing, it's it's not massively my bag. And, you know, it, it very much those kind of events, those style of events have really paved the way for things like uh, for, for, for things like Monty's Men, for instance. Exactly, um, exactly. Um, anyone who doesn't know what Monty's Men is, it's basically a, a coming together of, um, well, nearly 200 uh, guys uh, portraying uh, an infantry company with all the uh, various support echelons behind them as well in the field, spending about five days in the field as a soldier from uh, the Normandy campaign in 1944. And that is a, is a complete immersive um, living historians event for living historians. It really is. Um, you won't get closer to it. They have vehicles there, tanks, uh, brain carriers, jeeps, etc. Um, it's all Section 5 weapon hire as well. So you really can't get much closer. You're living off compo rations, living in slit trenches as well. It's really physically demanding. And that's uh, an event that both Jake and I are going to uh, next year. And we're really looking forward to it, aren't we? Yeah, we are indeed. And we're both in the same section, which is great as well. <laughs> and we didn't plan it either. <laughs> that's no, it the was, amazing thing. It, it was a nice little um, sort of small world kind of <laughs> kind of thing, really. So, yeah, and mm. we, we went into details sort of how we sort of met. And it was um, through sort of that I was getting kit ready for Monty's Men and... Uh, that's how I met Steve because he <laughs> bought him through a shop. So it was, it was, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And it's going to be an amazing event. Um, I hope it's, we'll, I think we're getting the dates soon for it, which will be good. And um, yeah, as, as Steve said, it's, it's, it's so, it's so in detail of what you've got to do. And it, it's so, an experience you'll really never forget. Um, obviously, yes, like it, what comes with that is the, like we said with the 24 hour the 40 hour trench event it's the tiredness it's the exhaustion um it's the uh sort of you're on edge all the time thinking of what's going to happen next kind of thing but it's it's that experience you'll you'll really really live for so yeah it is going to be an amazing event and i'm really really looking forward to it before we move on to the second half of the podcast here's a word from our sponsor here at the young contemptibles podcast we are very honoured and proud to be sponsored by Quartermaster Stores, a UK business specialising in bespoke leatherwork, footwear and historical clothing for living historians. Whether you are an old hand or a complete beginner in the world of living history, there really is something for everyone. And what's even better is that listeners of this podcast are entitled to a 5% discount. Simply use the code QMCAST5, that's QMCAST5, at checkout when shopping on quartermaster-stores.com. Okay, welcome back to the Uncontentals podcast. Um, thank you to our sponsor. Um, and now we're going to go into talk about um, the hobby in relation to World War One. Steve, would you like to kick this off? Yeah, so World War One. We've, we've just come out of the sort of centenary. So 2018 was the end of the centenary. And I think the kind of along similar lines to the Napoleonic era with what I was talking about earlier in terms of Waterloo, there's been um, a huge regression in numbers of uh, the you know, World War One fraternity. So a lot of kit went up for sale, uh, some of it which I bought at a very reasonable price, actually, um, which was very good. Thank you. Um, but yeah, they've kind of suffered from the regression in numbers. 
Um, now, in terms of events, I don't particularly think there's that many go-to events for the World War One period. Now, one of the positives that you've got for World War One is there's quite, you know, well, there's a small number of, of replica trench systems. So you've got places like the Staffordshire Museum, Hawthorne Trench, um, you know, uh, Parkall Farm, places that have got replica trench systems, and they really lend themselves uh, quite neatly to having uh, living historians go along and, and you know, sort of uh, occupy the trench system for a weekend. And that's, that's a great thing to do. You know, I'm a massive fan of that. It's great to have tours come round and teach them about various you know, parts of the trench and how they were planned out and, you know, how, how the guys lived in the trench, especially. I don't think there's enough of those kind of events, but I think that kind of goes hand in hand with there's not enough groups portraying the First World War either. Um, and that's what led myself and Pete Neal to plan the, um, the 48-hour trench event, um, as, as you know it, Jake. And that obviously is a private event, so there's no public at all. It's just participants, they pay a fee, uh, they get stuck in for 48 hours and live the life of a typical soldier of the First World War um, for 48 hours eating the you know, correct rations and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's arguably the closest you'll get to the real thing. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, as we sort of said previously, is it, it was an experience that was unlike any other, really. Um, and as Steve said, we get stuck in. Uh, we enter the trench at, um, basically at dusk and it was fairly dark when we entered. Uh, move up to the line, enter the line, then we immediately get in, not normally the case of the most realistic in the way of like immediately into combat, but it's given that example that, that what, that's what might happen. Um, so we're, we're swapping over with another company or battalion or whatever it may be. We were preparing a platoon. And we get into the front line and we immediately get into um, contact. And it's, it's so bizarre because you, you're in it's pitch, pitch black and then suddenly things start going off. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, light from the flashes of the, of the gunfire, etc. And it's very, very full on. And then it's immediately quiet again. It's, it's very much mm. a case of like, it's long periods of boredom mixed with very, very short periods of, high intensity and excitement and it, and it really makes you feel like the crisis is what it might have been like um and yeah and then you add in all the other aspects of it so your the your, the food you're eating then you add in the how tired you're getting just by physical exhaustion and also the lack of sleep as well so we we only spent 48 hours but in real life these guys would have spent four or five maybe even more days in the front line mm. before going into reserve and they would not be able to sleep in the front line um and it's 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 something you really really have a found respect for thinking how do these guys do it this was a hundred years ago and it's um, these guys not living the lifestyle as many of us are now and it's it's very very different to think like and when you think about like, a lot of the guys um who joined up in the early part of the war um came from all walks of life so from from laborers to clerks to to accountants and anything else in between and then you add in the officer class as well even from a more broader and um, wider society. And it's, and they, they had never seen anything like this before. Then coming from uh, obviously a period of empire and, and conquest and that's what they've learned in school when they're going into this thing, thinking it's not going to be like an adventure, obviously not for all of them, but some of them did anyway, I think this. And um, it's very much a, uh, a new kind of open up society for them. And they, and it's very, very diff- strange to try and, Get your mind around that from a from a modern perspective really of how that felt for them when they were in the thing 
in the mm. trenches and, and in well obviously early part of the war not in trenches but then obviously later in 1914 but um you get a grasp of what it might have been like and um it really makes you think like uh how can we even get even closer to try and understand um the feelings the sights the smells the sounds of um of what these guys experience so i think the trench event is very much a brilliant step to getting closer to um experiencing those experiences that these guys um experienced so so yeah, yeah. And, and then obviously with with next year with the what we're doing for which is later in the war so it'd be more open field combat rather than in trenches and that's even another dynamic aspect of the war we um we will um we'll venture into so it'd be very much looking forward to that world war one is it's an amazing amazingly rich period and i feel it's massively underrepresented in Definitely. Li- the living history world there's, there's not that many groups there's only i think two groups that portray german infantry of the first world war on the circuit i think there's only about four british groups that do it to an acceptable standard as well and when you compare and contrast that with the second world war and even with the napoleonic period as well it's it's so massively underrepresented. It's such a shame. So it'd be nice to see a resurgence of the First World War. So we've we've managed with the trench events, obviously bring a, a lot, you know, a huge number of people into that period. But also you've got people who are now returning to it as well because it's yeah. kicking up a lot of interest. So I'd be interested to hear Jay, because obviously I don't do post World War Two as things stand. Um, so what are the you know in comparison to the other periods? What what are the post World War Two events like? So. So it's a bit of a mix, really. There's obviously you have the large and expanding um, groups in the way of like the um, Vietnam. So with the Americans in that in Vietnam, there's yeah. huge groups. You've got um, like Rolling Thunder and other groups like that, such. Um, and that's constantly evolving. And then as, as, along with that, that, with the World War II aspect of it, really, um, you've got so many different films about Vietnam, um, which get people interested. And some people just go straight forward with like, their impression like just based on the films which isn't the correct thing to do like it's good to get um a uh, inkling of it to get involved in it but you really want to be doing like your own research and um or having someone help you with research etc getting um as best you can really with that but in the way of say british post-war it's very much a niche kind of thing really at the moment it, it is it is gathering more steam as um we get further and further away say from the cold war period um that it's becoming more desirable to do um there are still few groups who do um say portrayals of like and um, the british army and other commonwealth nations in like malaya and borneo um but they are getting up steams for example i i um do malaya um and are venturing more into borneo as well um and there are some groups who do other periods but they also do that as like a side thing as well um in the way of like falklands and northern ireland uh it's very uh it's touch and go really like i i've mm. i'm with a group who've done like northern ireland and british army the rhine as well um uh, and a lot of the veterans really do like it because they like they like seeing their um their part of history portrayed um it not all some pro- people um some um veterans might be a bit off about it but generally on the broad aspect they're, they're very much keen to see it um and it's something i really want to keep alive as well like End of the day, especially with like um, topics like Northern Ireland, the Operation Banner um, from 1969 to 2007, it's 
it needs to be taught because if you don't learn, you never, if you don't teach, you'll never learn and et cetera. It's, it's very much, you need to keep those um, memories alive and we keep it to like, this was the job. This is the kit, etc. Don't, don't, I don't really want to go much into the politics because that's a mm. whole minefield and it will kind of worms. It, yeah. <laughs> whole can of worms. It will turn people off. And it, and it's, and that's not what it's about. It's not about the politics. It's not about this. It's just about, this was the history this was the what they're wearing, how they did it, and how they did the job, etc. Um, and it's the same thing with, say, like the Falklands as well, or even um, um, British Army of the Rhine. So when you're dealing with the uh, communist bloc who are over the border, who are over the the um, in in East Germany, etc., and there's possible threat of an, of an invasion from 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 the Warsaw Pact, that's a whole new spectrum to it. And it it was a threat that lasted for several decades and it was huge this huge juggernaut of the warsaw pact that could at any point come and sweep through west germany into france and um it's something that's been more people are doing now which is great it's awesome to see but also it's a case of like if you're going to do it do it well um or attempt to do it Mm -hmm. well or um ask people how to do it well um because there's there's always there's always a thing where like you see from certain groups especially like i've seen like airsoft events like don't get me wrong at airsoft events for example some people like do a half part because they don't want to ruin original kit and all this and i absolutely accept that but then they then take that kit load out or whatever they've done into say the reenacting world and it doesn't really work yes you start off somewhere but you can't expect to get the same results as say if you try to do it correctly because i think it's it's Airsoft is actually a very good way of getting into reenacting. Like from experience, that's how I got in. Um, but mm. you've got to, you've got to expect like things have to change and things have to improve. And I think it's a very good way of like getting your experience up and getting that way of like really really um, honing your abilities with the with the kit and with all the authenticity of it as well, um, and the thought around it as well. So you want to get the mindset of trying to portray it as best as I can. Um, but yeah, as 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 with like the post-war um, reenacting reenacting in total, there are groups who do like Americans in like the first Gulf War and 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 with the um, conflict in um, in Somalia, like with Mogadishu and that as well. The British side, it can be hit and miss. There are a few groups who do like um, Operation Granby, so first Gulf War. Um, there are a few groups who do um, Falklands, but not as many. You don't really see them at events as much. And the same with like, Banner, really, as well. You've got groups like um, Soldiers of the Queen who do like, British Army of the Ryan and not Banner. And then with the group I'm in, which is East Meets West, we do Op Banner, British Army of the Rhine, and um, we don't really do Falklands, but uh, I've started collecting kit and trying to get into that sort of area because it wasn't just the paras and the and the commandos, um, Royal Marine commandos who were at who were in Falklands, it was many other units. You had the Scots Guards, the Welsh Guards, the Gurkhas, yep. etc. Um, so it's really a big expansion of that, really. And um, and hopefully the uh, hobby within the post-war community, um, to say the least, um, really expands more because it, it needs to, it needs to be portrayed. It needs to be told. The stories need to be told because okay? these guys. Um, because they, they were a threat, really, as well, because you had the threat of the Warsaw Pact, as I said, but also at any point, these guys could be redeployed to Northern Ireland. And um, and it was very much a uh, day-to-day kind of thing of, like, will they come back from Northern Ireland? Will, when they're on a patrol, what will happen next? So their stories need to be told, in my personal view. 
They absolutely do. And one of the unique uh, sort of things that, you, well, feathers in your cap you've got for portraying that period is sort of one, there's a lot of the kit still kicking around. And like yeah. if you wanted to do, say, First World War and obviously Napoleonic. Um, but secondly, you've also got, um, you know, a huge number of, um, you know, guys who were actually involved in those conflicts and serving at the time still around. So for research purposes, um, you know, there's a plethora of, um, you know, sort of uh, primary sources you can delve into there. Exactly, exactly. And like, as I said before, like my father served in Northern Ireland several times and was in the British of the Rhine, etc. And I know a lot of other guys who were as well. Um, and it's, it, the kit is, is more plentiful, as you said, like more plentiful, say, than order one kit and much more affordable. Um, and you don't have to really buy like reproduction stuff. But however, there are things which are getting a bit more rarer now. So say like the clothing, so like 68 pattern, 68 pattern um, combat jackets and trousers and things like that are getting much more um, pricey as time goes by because people are buying it up more now because as I said, like the people are getting into the, that part of the hobby much more. Um, the webbing, etc. So for the standard British soldier of that period of the Cold War period is 58 pattern webbing. That's still fairly cheap. Prices are going mm. up and depending on certain bits and the earlier pattern stuff, but in general, it's very much still out there in large, large numbers. Um, very much like what 37 pattern was back in the 80s. Um, it's very much out there. And it's a shame because a lot of it, uh, after it was pulled out of like frontline service, a lot of it was burnt. A lot of it was just tossed in the bin yeah. and burnt or whatever and just sold off, uh, which is a shame. Um, but, travesty. Uh, Absolute still... travesty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who basically said, that certain companies and um, who had it, who had it, and uh, and battalions and companies, etc., and whatever um, barracks you're at, basically were just putting the kit in piles and burning it because they had no use for it and it wasn't it wasn't valuable to them. Um, that was a long that was a while ago now, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's now scraped up in popularity and uh, eventually it will become it will become rare to buy. It will become rare within say the next couple of decades. But as it stands at the moment, it's still out there in plentiful numbers. So get it while you can, I'd say. Absolutely. Get it while you can. So it's a bit like the DFS sale, isn't it? Um, so just thinking about favourite events. So I'm going I'm to list my three favourite events. And it's, it's not an easy one. And they're not by no means in a specific order. But I would go for uh, Waterloo. I think that's a fantastic event because you actually get to, um, you know, do the battle and so forth and do your living history side of it on the actual battlefield, in and around places like Hougamon and La Haysant. So that is like incredibly unique and incredibly interesting as well. Um, the Victory Show, which is uh, on again uh, next year. Surprise, surprise. Um, it is happening again, even though apparently it might be the last one. Um, but they say that every year. Um, but thankfully, it's not the last one. Uh, that's always, it was always a, a good fun uh, show because it, it's pretty much on a doorstep for me. So that's a bonus. And then it, it's going to be the event that we always talk about on this podcast, Jake. And we're still buzzing from it. And that is, of course, the trench event. So that's my, my sort of top three in no particular order. What's yours? I think first one, my top one probably will be the trench event. So obviously. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Cause it was just, it was such a good experience and you never, hopefully will um get to do something similar like that but again like within a trench but uh, obviously next time we'll be doing an open plane which will be absolutely awesome and something i'll never forget um next that will probably be the we have ways fest so mm. i did that a couple of weeks ago so i, I think i mentioned the previous podcast so that would be that was al murray and 
um, James Holland, who hosted that uh, because it's via to their pot, it's similar to their podcast. Um, and that was brilliant because the public there were very, very keen. They were very much ten, um, on tender hooks with like with their questions, etc. And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And um, it, we use it as like training for the for Monty's men as well, which was brilliant. Um, third, uh, final but not least, um, would be um, Military Odyssey. So the one down at Detlin in Kent. Um, I've been to that every time I can. Um, sadly, the past few years and this year I wasn't able to attend um but it's a brilliant event it's, it's multi-period but i've generally had a good time every time i've gone and the weather's normally great or opposite to that it's really really bad depending but that's like with any event in the uk but yeah it, it's an amazing event um and the great great nightlife and great sort of social aspect to it as well but um yeah. uh, it's a brilliant event to do one event i've actually never never been to so it is on the to visit list i'm always uh, you know asked to go so next year fingers crossed i'll be there yeah, definitely. It'd be great to have you along, mate, because um, I've done several different uh, been with several different groups while being there. I've done Cold War there. I did World War II British and World War II German as well there. Um, and it's definitely something I always want to go to. Excellent. So we've got a few questions. We've got three, but I don't think we're going to answer them all. So we'll dive straight in with question one, uh, which is what's the biggest trouble we face when reenacting? So what is the biggest? Well, I wouldn't say it it's a trouble. Um, but there's a couple of things that annoy me. Um, so specific to, you know, world war one, world war two is, uh, you'll get like people say, take your hands out your pockets. That's one thing that always annoys me. And it's typically always the same small minority of people who, you know, served in, in the armed forces for three or four months and injected in. And, uh, you know, as I say, it's a very small quota of people, but it's something where you think, well, actually, if you knew something about the period, you'd realize that guys were doing it all the time. There's, there's literally hundreds, thousands of photos, in fact, of uh, guys doing it, especially in World War II and World War One. You know, it's more of a national service and post-war you know, war, um, kind of thing, the whole hands in pockets. And equally, it's worth mentioning the wearing of the beret, which is something uh, I'll put a video on TikTok and it's got some like 100-odd uh, thousand views. But um, we always get people saying, and I'm sure you've had them as well, Jake, saying, you know, make sure you wear your beret uh, properly. You know, Don't have it on the back of your head or you know, shape your beret. Well, you know, the World War II pattern beret is a completely different pattern to a modern beret, and the guys it's, wore yeah. it so many different ways. Mm. Yeah, and, so and, even, <laughs> and, and even with, like, the um, with the general service cap, which technically wasn't classed as a beret, um, you wear it in all sorts of ways, as you were saying. Sorry. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, I'm, it's one of those things that really um, really annoys me, and uh, some people say it to me just to wind me up because I know it winds me up, but it is, like, my number two pet peeve. So... You know, the biggest troubles we face with reenacting, well, I wouldn't say it was trouble, but it's just little things that can really annoy you. Yeah, so it's, it's I think niggly bits, yeah. It's just in essence, kind of people who, um, you know, are very quick to open the mouth and judge others, but actually have very little knowledge or grasp on the f historical facts of the period. No, totally. I think another one is, um, I've, I've had it and I've heard other people who've had this as well. It's about smoking in uniform as well. Which is a very <laughs> odd one I've had. Is oh, you shouldn't, you wouldn't smoke in uniform. But like, of course, you can. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> like I think you put up like you. These guys were issued like they were issued cigarettes within say like certain rations mm. they had, etc. Like within yep. the compo. Um, and it's like okay, like where are you getting this information from? And, and as you said, with the hands in the pockets thing as well, it's like countless and countless photos and ex and experiences from guys like it's like yeah, of course you would. Like it's it's comfortable. 
it's you, you want to be comfortable at the end of the day um mm. and 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 the beret thing is is the most ridiculous thing it's like it's it's very much a um post-war uh national service thing where the regulation yeah. with berets really came to its forefront during the war it was basically like wear it how you like it kind of thing there wasn't really regulation around it um it it was very much a um a style taken on from really like the navy really because uh in the navy guys when they went on walkabout and when they're off ship and even when on ship as well they were wearing their um they were wearing their caps in all sorts of different ways right on the back of the head held on by brutal cream and good luck really Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it was very much a fashion statement at the time it it looked alley it looked it looked stylish (laughs) it looked kind of cool and... In fact, something's just popped to my mind because we talk about guys wearing their hats and caps, you know, to look, you know, sort of fashionable. Well, there's actually a um, a uh, report from the Napoleonic era. I can't remember the exact year, but obviously early 19th century, and it actually says that the the guys are wearing their caps at jaunty angles. Um, that, that's the actual quote of it. So it's something that's been around for for a long time. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, things don't change in that sense. But <clears throat> there we go. You know, you can't please everyone. Exactly, yeah, because it's, it's, it's there because it, it, it mimics the fashion of the general population, really, as well. Everyone's wearing that, everyone wants to be fashionable, especially within, say, the higher echelons as well. It, may, it makes you stand out, etc. And obviously, that period, you want to be attracting the ladies, etc. And you want to be doing that. So that's what it, it gives you that edge over everyone else, really. So the second question we've got, and there's, there is no way we're going to be able to cover this in full. This is going to be a question that's going to have to be uh, have, have a podcast dedicated solely to it. Uh, and the, the question was submitted by uh, Danny Rees, I believe. Um, was Arnhem Bridge really a bridge too far in the grand plan? As you I'll said, just get yeah. the can opener. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a can of worms. I mean, it, was it a bridge too far? Well, it, it did turn out to be a bridge too far, but you know, winding it back to pre, you know, before the operation, was it going to be a bridge too far? I think it was maybe a little bit too ambitious. You know, there's there's too many variables in place, and it all hinged on you know certain things falling into place, so the dominoes would fall in the right order. Um, it's it's one of those we could sit here for hours and talk about it, but we're not going to, are we? <laughs> no, no, no. We'll, we'll yeah, it's it's going to be a whole different ball game to go into that now. But uh, but I will I will sort of say like I personally believe it, yeah, as similar to what you said, a bit ambitious, but it it would have been it could have been possible and we'll get into that in further detail in a in a whole dedicated video for itself but um but thank you for the question there dan so thank you for listening to the young contentables podcast if you'd like to support the uh, podcast there are several links below if you want to send in uh questions or if you have like a topic you want us to look at please do so um and also if you wish to donate there'll be a paypal link down below as well uh, so if you want to help us out with the production or all, any sort of thing that will need a little bit of funding, that'd be much, much appreciated. But obviously, if you can't, any like just support of the channel with likes or anything of that sort of, sort of nature will be absolutely perfect. So I really hope you enjoyed and goodbye.